Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. This week, we are catching up with the biggest titles from the Christmas holiday. We're going to, later on after this conversation, got got some Spider-Man talk, but for now, pleasure to bring back on the podcast, awakening from the the goo inside her her battery pod in the the <laughs> netherworld uh welcome to christy strauss wow that's quite the uh it's quite the opening i was lining up that metaphor and then was like you know what i actually don't know what the like weird goo pods in the matrix are called so i hope <laughs> i made that as clear as possible to our listeners <laughs> yes i i've just been awoken I was stuck in the matrix. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, so Christy, you get the the pleasure of, uh, we're going to talk about what kind of wound up being not just the two most divisive movies of the, the, the holiday season, but the arguably year. the entire year. Yeah. Um, no vitriol on this podcast. It's, it's been a little scary diving into Twitter in the last week or so and seeing just like, people throwing like molotov cocktails at each other about their their takes on these two movies but we're we're going to be talking about uh matrix resurrections which is the the fourth film in that action franchise as well as don't look up the satirical disaster movie from adam mckay um christy i'm going to leave it to you which 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 one of these bears do you want to poke first (laughs) and it's so funny i was just thinking about that like we didn't plan this but they really do have the biggest discourse of like any two movies this year oh so how many cocktails are we gonna have thrown at us for this i i I don't know i probably should just shut down my twitter after (laughs) this episode goes up yeah um we can we can start with don't look up okay i think that's i think that's that's we'll look up Yes, we'll we'll look up as as Ariana Grande <laughs> encourages us to do. So, this is the the newest film from Adam McKay, uh, comedy director, probably probably best known um, for kind of being Will Ferrell's go to collaborator for many years and being behind a lot of the more iconic Will Ferrell comedies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. Although in more recent years, he's kind of moved into being this. Uh, very political filmmaker doing these very um, kind of Brechtian uh, docudramas that sort of use comedic devices to explore these political issues and uh, political topics that he's very fascinated in. Movies like The Big Short and Vice. And now his newest movie is a satirical disaster comedy question mark we'll talk about how actually funny this movie is um but it basically stars jennifer lawrence and leonardo dicaprio as astronomers who discover there is a mount everest sized comet hurtling towards earth and they go out into the world to warn not just the president of the united states played by meryl streep but the the wide world in general and realize that that is uh, easier said than done as the issue sort of gets tossed off by various politicians and people of power out in the world and gets politicized through our modern-day media climate. Uh, One of the more star-studded casts, I think, in in recent memory, not just those three stars, but also 
Jonah Hill, Kate Blanchett, Tyler Perry, Ariana Grande, Timothy Chalamet, Mark Rylance, Kid Cudi. Uh, did I forget anyone? I don't think so. It's a very stacked cast. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm just checking the IMDb to make sure I, I did not miss any. Mark Rylance's teeth. Yes, Mark Rylance's other... teeth. That's 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 a big <laughs> one. Um, I mean. We we can just move on. It's, that's <laughs> that's basically it. Oh, Ron Ron Perlman. I mean, how can oh, I forget yeah, Ron, Ron Perlman? Rob Morgan, um, who's like a really great character actor. Um, yeah. anyway, a, a, like extremely stacked cast. I don't know about you. I was greatly looking forward to this movie. This was probably one of my more anticipated releases this year. Um, I love the Adam McKay Will Ferrell comedies. Mm. I think. His his more recent turn into political, kind of overtly political movies, because I think Adam McKay has always been a very political filmmaker. Like there's there's certainly a line you can draw between those Will Ferrell comedies and kind of the the sort of satirical public image of George Bush during those years. Those movies came out and those mm-hmm. movies kind of functioning as sort of like stealth Bush era satires. <laughs> um, yeah. But I don't know. I would say I'm I'm a little bit exhausted. I think his he's become a less effective filmmaker as he has tried more overtly to be a political filmmaker. If that makes Absolutely. any sense, it um, does. Yeah, and this is definitely heavy handed. Yes, <laughs> I I I like the Big Short. I'm not one of those people who think it's an out and out masterpiece. I think my appreciation for it grew more after I saw Vice, which is very similar, but I think not as effective, and. This movie, I, 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 it's it's the most disappointing movie of the year for me. Now, granted, it's it's incredibly divisive. There's some people out there who I think it it worked for, but I'm I'm curious as we kind of dive into more of the aspects of it, kind of like what your thoughts were watching it. Yeah, um, it's definitely you know a disappointment <laughs> to to say the least. Um, I I feel like it's it's interesting because I don't have this passionate love or hate for this film. It's kind of like middle. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not a super interesting, but there's things I appreciate, mostly like the performances, because I do think that everyone is is good in what they're trying to do. But overall, the movie just doesn't work for me. And it's just too heavy handed to the degree that it's kind of like almost uh, annoying at times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, that that's my really fast hot take, I guess. But um, but I was really looking forward to it. I mean, I do enjoy some of McKay's films. I, it just made me want to go watch Step Brothers, honestly. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> that's what it made me want to do. Um, and and maybe not look at Twitter for a while. But uh, but I, I also, Leonardo DiCaprio, anyone knows me, is like one of my favorite actors. So I'm always like excited when he does any kind of comedy because I feel like he's someone that can be hilarious but doesn't always do that. So I was looking forward to uh, this performance as well. And I don't know. I just, you know, it definitely is a disappointment, but so was 2021. So I guess it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I kind of described, I saw this a couple weeks before it was on Netflix and and people in my life who were also really excited for it were asking me about it. And I just sort of described it to them as kind of feeling like doom scrolling Twitter for two and a half hours. That's and... a really accurate actual description. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I I think part of why this movie isn't quite effective for me, I mean, it, it is a great example of 
there's that Roger Ebert quote about like it's not it's not what a movie's about it's a it's how it's about it and this is a movie that on paper I kind of agree with so many of the things that Adam McKay is trying to say I mean him mm-hmm. and everyone involved in this movie has been very overtly clear that this is an allegory for for climate change absolutely and are kind of the society's seeming lack of urgency for dealing with that that issue mm-hmm. um i think after the last couple of years it's pretty hard also not to view this as a pretty direct allegory whether intentional or not for everything that's gone on with covid and yes. sort of scientists and health experts sort of saying hey this is an issue here's some things we need to do to tackle it and it just sort of getting politicized or people being like i don't know that seems like an inconvenience for me i don't know i want to deal with that right yeah and <laughs> denial he's, he's trying to throw a lot of daggers in this movie and I, I i think everything from the trump administration cable news social media celebrity culture climate deniers big tech billionaires like elon musk and mark zuckerberg all all groups and institutions that i think are are ripe for sort of getting their underpants sort of like flung up the flagpole (laughs) all of them are in this basically yes (laughs) but the movie to me doesn't work i think firstly because it it is so like you said kind of beating you It, it it's so focused on trying to to give you this message that I feel like it's it's urgency and strain to give you that message just sort of like rings all the humor out of the experience of watching it. I mean, it's it's been weird seeing people compare it on social media to something like Dr. Strangelove, which mm-hmm. should side note say this whole podcast, we are spoiling all these movies. You've had like a week or two to watch <laughs> them. So if you haven't seen them, Go watch them, but we're going to have to like talk about these movies to talk about them. But similar to Doctor Strangelove, this is a movie that that ends in human extinction. But Doctor Strangelove is also like a very very funny movie that is is sort of fully works because it's able to to heighten the absurdity of that movie's subject matter, which is like nuclear war and the arms race. And this movie is almost don't look up is almost straining so hard to to make sure you understand the message that it just kind of becomes this kind of preachy message movie and you can feel moments of it where it's reaching for humor or or where you're like that that is objectively like you've constructed a joke but the joke isn't landing because you've sort of wrung all the humor out of it there's almost like it's almost too tense and too um I, I guess just sort of like nervous about you not getting the point. Right. A- it's like across. explaining a joke at nauseum and then <laughs> it right. loses all its humor. Right. Right. It's, it is, there's so much strain put on what the movie is about that all humor kind of gets sucked out of the room. And I think in kind of like a transition question, it's not whether this is the fault of McKay or just sort of bad luck because of the time we live in. It doesn't even really work as a a satire that is sort of illuminating an aspect of society. Like another movie that this is kind of indebted to is Network, the the Sidney Lumet movie, which is is not a funny movie, I would say, but it is sort of like Sidney Lumet kind of like taking a microscope or or 
sort of a big flashy spotlight onto the idea of um quote unquote modern day news media and being like this is the kind of like and heightening everything to this crazy absurd scenario to almost be like look look how effed up and messed up this institution is and this is the kind of like dangerous absurd area we're going to go to and this movie never even feels illuminating it sort of feels like like i said kind of like all of the things that people have kind of already been screaming about online and on twitter over the last couple years kind of blended into a movie and then just sort of presented to us as like a snapshot of our world which as a time capsule i guess it's effective because it's it's pretty dead on (laughs) but it 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 i i left the movie more sort of exhausted and Mm -hmm. feeling like i had just sort of been kind of living in the same twitter environment that i i sort of unfortunately check into every single day i'm i'm I, yeah, I guess I'm I know, just right? curious to your <laughs> thoughts about that and like it it reminded me of one of the earlier episodes we did on the show was about the borat sequel and josh martin i think who's the guest on that episode and i talking about how tricky it is to kind of do satire right now especially when the real world feels mm-hmm. so satirized and it's kind of hard for this movie to feel like this comic exaggeration of like where we could be heading as a society when it just sort of feels like, Hey, here's all the stuff we're already screaming about because isn't the world's just like so messed up. And, and it, it, it made me feel more kind of like exhausted and kind of depressed than anything, which maybe that's the point, but I, I don't know. Where do you kind of feel on, on that aspect of the movie? Yeah. I feel like you kind of um, with everything that you just said, kind of nailed it because I think, with so many different things, like you said, it's kind of, you know, news, politics, like it's it's really taking on so many different things that it's it's just too much. It's just um, overwhelming. And I feel like it is perfect way to say it is basically like, you know, going through Twitter any day, pretty much this year. And I, I think that the reason that it doesn't work or a big reason it doesn't work is because we've just kind of are just tired of this stuff as it is and mm-hmm. getting beat over the head with these is, isn't necessarily the way to make us laugh as much as it's like um, a reminder of what's already, you know, <laughs> frustrating. But I also, I mean, it did make me laugh a few times, but honestly, I think all of the, the times that this movie made me laugh or it's like Jennifer Lawrence when she like flips out or like Leonardo DiCaprio mm. when he's having like an anxiety attack and those shouldn't be funny yes. honestly <laughs> but um there's a great I, bit with snacks that is like the one oh, yes. part of the movie I, that it's is, like a, I actually that, that wrote this down laugh. yes that the is my joke favorite the joke really of the movie worked. yes yes <laughs> I actually wrote that down snacks because it's like and it's something that's brought up more than once right and, and I every, always it, love love that in movies yeah it's always like extra funny when it gets brought brought up i i think and that's more of the the energy i wish this movie had i mean like like i said i i certainly i i i was almost thirsty for a, a kind of comedy like this to to sort of be the kind of cathartic release of all of these sort of frustrations of kind of the last few years but it never provides that kind of cathartic release or sort of makes me think larger about kind of where we're going as a society. And, and so it just sort of felt like 
running through the muck again and i never felt sort of either enlightened or entertained yeah. by it even though there it was are... a, it's like good in theory this yes. this film yeah for sure yeah but execution I'm... is just kind of <laughs> leaves something to be desired but mm-hmm. yeah I, I i agree i think the snack joke um honestly if if the movie was just populated with stuff like that and gave us more of those moments of humor that aren't trying to just you know like i said kind of beat us over the head with the message and and so consumed with that um it would definitely be more successful but yeah and and i almost feel like the movie is more effective when it's or i should say the more honest to me sections of the movie are when it it is playing things much more serious and i think especially Mm -hmm. as you get towards the end and this movie is i think really not afraid to kind of stare down the barrel of the gun and say like hey what would it be like if just like human extinction is just like around the corner like at at, you know three o'clock tomorrow we all know as a species like we're gonna get wiped out and like there's nothing you can do about it and living in that kind of melancholia um even though i would argue McKay kind of can't fully commit to the to reference melancholia, the Lars von Trier ending, because he <laughs> sort of undercuts. I, I feel like kind of undercuts kind of this sort of like pretty dark ending with trying to give you like a little bit of a light punchline at the end that just did did not. Another example of like it it did not it felt straining and was just sort of like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really want to laugh right now. I kind of want to like huddle up in my closet and cry. Yeah. I think I did that after. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, But yeah, um, no, I, I agree. And melancholia, that's such a good movie. Go watch that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But um, no, I, I think, you know, and there is some humor, like in moments you know like the memes and stuff like some of the uh social reaction like <laughs> social media reactions to certain things like showing like how people are but again it's kind of just a reminder of daily life on twitter so it's also right. just like that that would happen so do we need to see it but i just also think this movie is too long <laughs> like yeah. it, it really could have been like slimmed i feel like again I, it, it's kind of like everything else it's like too excess like they you know he just felt the need to keep this going and it definitely did not need the the runtime that it had i think maybe to give one little positive thing i did really enjoy the score the the nicholas Patel score who's yeah. one of my favorite current composers and that that i do think it's like a really beautiful score that mm-hmm. i hope gets like nominated for um for an oscar but yeah i i it's it's been so weird seeing kind of the reactions people have been having to this since Mm -hmm. it came out on netflix because there there does seem to be a camp of people i when i saw this i was like people are gonna like turn on this like rabid dogs of like that i i was sort of feeling more people were gonna have the reaction you and i are gonna kind of had of just sort of being like i don't know that I'm kind of like ready to see this right now, or this, yeah. this is not kind of the more people wanting a little bit escapism than kind of here. Let's, let's blend together everything that everyone's been kind of like raging about on Twitter for the last two years into a movie. Um, but I, it sounds like there were a fair amount of people who found this to be kind of like a cathartic scream of a movie, which mm-hmm. 
more power to him. But Absolutely. I, I, I just, again, I neither got the catharsis I wanted to sort of laugh at how absurd the world is while also thinking we're in this tricky place with satire where the sort of absurdity, the real world is so absurd and people are commenting on it and we're being bombarded with everyone's opinions through social media and YouTube and Twitter 24 seven, that it's hard to kind of make a movie like this and make it feel profound. And it kind of just winds up feeling like a bunch of just regurgitated takes, if that makes sense. No, it does. And you know, more than anyone, probably just as much as anyone, I love laughing at the absurdity of life, but Mm -hmm. I just did not um, have that experience as much as I had hoped here. And, and, you know, another um, positive thing is if this for some reason does work and make some people consider some of the issues and, and stuff going on, great. You know, then McKay, I guess, opened some eyes, but I don't I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if some people, like you said, you know, have a kind of cathartic experience with it, that, you know, awesome. But I don't know for me, you know, maybe it's partially the timing or. I mean, it. I don't know why it had to be at the very end of this year, too. It's like, the this. I just want this 2022 to come and, and things to suddenly be better. But, um, you know, it's just maybe a accumulation of things. But it really does feel like, you know, Twitter rage the movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's let's maybe transition a bit. Um, unless you got any more, don't don't look up thoughts. No, I I think that's good. Actually, it's kind of a, a funny segue because we're kind of in the matrix talking about this. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk about uh Matrix Resurrections. Um, I'm curious what what is your not just sort of relationship to the Matrix franchise, but also Lana and Lily Wachowski as as filmmakers as as you know two of i think are more ambitious blockbuster filmmakers for better and sometimes for worse yeah um well i i've always been a really huge fan of matrix um especially the first movie as i think anyone who probably loves cinema is Mm -hmm. um some of their other film <laughs> not not as much. Yeah. Um, but it's been kind of hit or miss for me over the years. And the same with the Matrix sequels, honestly. Yeah, I I was surprised actually going back through a few of their movies in the last year, how I'm I actually like more of them than I I thought. Um I would really say like I'm not particularly a, a Jupiter ascending person. <laughs> um cloud atlas you know i'm i'm pretty mixed on that's like a insanely ambitious movie that i kind of have to admire the ambition but it sort of gets to the end and it doesn't it doesn't full i'm impressed that they could do a three-hour movie that's never boring where it's six different stories from six different timelines all happening at the same time but it never kind of fully comes together as a movie to me and i'm actually a bit of a speed racer defender i i I really (laughs) enjoy that movie as just an aesthetic object and their first movie bound i think is one of the more underrated movies of the 1990s um that yeah, mo- that movie's so good like i don't understand <laughs> it it's it's probably only because of like no one knew who they were really at at that point in in history cuz that's right before the matrix um and my relationship to the matrix like I, like you i i love the first one it's 
I don't know if you have this relationship to it. It's this weird movie for me that it's like so ingrained in our popular culture that I feel like I almost take it for granted sometimes and then it'll be on TV or I'll rewatch it and kind of just like get blown back in my seat again. Like, oh, wow, this this movie actually is really, really amazing and is so propulsive and imaginative and has like such a unique vision from start to finish and and is like kind of a perfect action movie. Um, I'll be honest. I had not seen the either of the sequels for well over a decade and the last time i was and i'd only seen them once did not really remember much about them other than them being kind of confusing and just overall disliking them so over thanksgiving i kind of had a a double feature in one day watch both reloaded and uh revolutions i liked reloaded a bit more than i remembered it's not a great movie, but it's it's got so many interesting ideas in it and like a couple really terrific set pieces like the big um kind of car chase on the interstate and yeah, it's, it's a prob- great scene. Yeah, it's probably one of the weird <laughs> franchise blockbusters of this century and it it has so much ambition and it doesn't quite grasp fully grasp onto everything that it's it's trying to achieve but i i enjoyed it more for just a movie that it seemed like was really reaching for the stars and didn't quite get there but it it was it makes like a really fascinating movie to unpack and is sort of entertaining to watch them at least like try to get to that place revolutions I'm I'm sorry. That's kind of a big swing and a miss for them. I I can't defend that movie. I, after watching Reloaded, I was like, "Wow, maybe I was wrong about these." And then fired up uh, Revolutions and was just like, "Oh gosh, yeah, no. Th- this is the real like kind of stinker in this this series, and probably like one of uh, Lana and Lily's kind of like weaker movies as filmmakers." Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of go back, I I do really like Bound a lot. I'm kind of a speed racer defender, not like, you know, (laughs) huge, but a little bit at least. And I definitely am pro. um, I well, no. Is anyone a Jupiter Ascending fan, really, though? Let's be honest. But no, I am pro (laughs) Cloud Atlas, not so much Jupiter Ascending. But with the Matrix movies, you know, I've always thought that the first movie, if the other two were never made, would be fine because it's it's kind of a perfect, you know, action movie as it is. Yeah. And but yet whenever I watch it, I I do watch the sequels. So I have seen them um, over the years few times and i feel like the reason that i do is because i just feel like it's i have to finish the story as they wanted it to be finished Mm -hmm. even though now we have a new movie so you know that wasn't really the case but there is no doubt that those movies uh you know the second one's you know obviously not as good but then the third one is especially not as good um there's actually so many annoying things about the third and there's you know while there's one of the best sequences in in reloaded with you know on the uh highway then there's also that really poorly um special effect scene where him he's fighting you know all the smiths oh um, yeah a- or, another- sorry all the knee yeah yeah, no, no, I mean, that's a great example of, like, even... It looked like, like the, the video game, but yeah, not as... <laughs> it, 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 the, the ambition that I was talking about, I think, kind of even extends to the action sequence 
senses of like they're they are like how do they one up their cool right uh, they're action sequences in the first yeah they're attempting to do stuff that even probably like the technology wasn't there in the early 2000s to to fully accomplish that maybe today but like back back then we're i think reaching for something that was even a bit strained to what they could accomplish um so now we have this new one which is just lana wachowski lily sat this one out and i was really curious as to like i think i feel like hunter Heilman, who's been on the show several times kind of brought this up when the trailer came out like what what aspects of the matrix mythology is lana's interest versus lily's and mm. we get this movie which i went into knowing trying to know as little as possible and was a bit surprised but also kind of a bit delighted to see that this is a very very meta movie that is aggressively trying it aggressively feels like Lana Wachowski wrestling with here is this mythology and the story and these characters that I've created but now it is sort of larger than me and all these other people around the world have these different it it is have sort of hijacked kind of the iconography of the movie for and and sort of looked into it different meanings and have these different interpretations about what the matrix is about some of them good some of them pretty dark and sinister and <laughs> her wrestling with like that legacy while also kind of trying to sort of wipe that stuff away and say like no this is to me what is the sort of central important part of this story and these characters that i created it it very much felt to me like this is to this is her version of like gremlins 2 or Wes craven's <laughs> new, nightmare. new nightmare yeah which i feel like is the one that's been brought up a lot because that's the one that's like west craven returning to the nightmare on elm street series and doing this very very meta movie where there's an actual demon that looks like freddy krueger that has been uh kind of at bay because it's been able to feed off the fear that people got from the nightmare movies and now that they're not making them anymore that that demon is going to haunt the people who made those movies very strange movie (laughs) (laughs) but and but this is kind of in that that way and i think that meta-ness and the movie um the movie's sort of interrogation with the legacy and iconography of the matrix is a lot of what is really dividing people. Um, Yeah. It's very meta. (laughs) Yeah. What, what were your kind of thoughts after immediately watching it? And I also was someone that went into it without knowing pretty much anything. I muted and I tried to avoid spoilers as much Mm -hmm. as possible. And anyone who hasn't seen it should stop listening because don't like go into this, not, you know, the same way. You've been warned. We've said it like five times (laughs) on this podcast. I can't help you if you've sat here this long. (laughs) Um, yeah, it, it it's really like I feel, you know, it's definitely very, very, very meta, more than I would have predicted, and I I don't even really know what I was expecting. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like if you're gonna make a fourth Matrix, you kind of had to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of like don't look up. It also I feel like it's almost a little bit too excessive at times. Um, but I I appreciate it and I like it, and it's an element of the film that I I, I do is one of the more positive 
part, but it's, it's interesting because I think everything you just said is a hundred percent true. And uh, it's also interesting to think about the two versions, uh, the two Wachowskis, like how each of them kind of, you know, experience matrix and look at matrix. Um, But, you know, now more than ever, and it's funny because this is another movie, like don't look up, you said it was one of your most anticipated. This was definitely one of my most anticipated movies for sure. Um, You know, I remember seeing every matrix in theaters, which I didn't get to see this in theaters, but that's because of, you know, pandemic. And, (laughs) but uh, I got to see it at home. And again, maybe dulled the experience a little bit too, because this is a movie that probably, really you know you should feel in the theater but um yeah it's i don't know i really had i have like a strange journey with this movie like i there's aspects that i really love about it and then there's things that i was disappointed but at the same time when you're making a fourth film in in a you know friend like a series like how how do you do that and satisfy everybody is that even possible you know and i understand why there's such a discourse because i think when you touch something that people loved and had such an effect on so many people you're you're bound to disappoint some it's just the nature of film yeah and and i certainly think there's there's aspects of this movie that that don't work that maybe we can get into here in, in but overall bit. you're you're a you're a positive uh, on this I'm, yeah, I I kind of want to see it again because mm-hmm. I think when we talk about some of the stuff that doesn't quite work, there's some stuff that I I want to see if maybe like a second viewing clarifies some of the stuff I'm a little sort of confused I think this or is a movie by. that will definitely benefit from a second viewing. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, you're also I, going into it like well, I did at least like I have expectations even though I was trying to not as mm. much as possible because you you still you want to love this movie so much if you're a fan of Matrix and you're like, "Yay, Keanu's back. Moss is back." Like you know like and right. <laughs> you know so if anything like lets you down a little bit i feel like you feel it more than than others but yeah, yeah i feel like my it it almost weirdly sort of met my weird expectations for it which were just kind of like i know the wachowskis even though there's only one this time um make these really ambitious kind of out there crazy movies and I was just sort of going in of like, even if this movie's bad, this is going to be the like most entertaining bad thing I've seen all year <laughs> of just sort of. And and it was very surreal watching this within a 12 hour span of going to see the new Spider-Man movie. And <laughs> these are both both movies. Not to are inherently, I think, about um, sort of returning to iconography from previous movies and about the sort of audience relationship with that iconography spider-man doing it in a a i'd say very earnest straightforward way of saying here is this actor who played this character in a previous movie and we are sort of bringing them back for for your pleasure and this movie is much more i i think assaultive with that idea and (laughs) is is constantly reflecting on and reintroducing iconography and elements and lines and plot points from the previous matrix movies but is sort of like twisting them and abstracting them and you have characters coming in who are playing characters from the original trilogy but it's a different actor and it's like a weird morphed version of that character um you know like the opening scene Yes, yeah. the opening scene, which is exactly like the opening scene of the first movie, and then it sort of pans or cuts over to two other characters who are observing it mm-hmm. and are just sort of like something's repeating and then are like commenting on the scene. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious, kind of like how well did you think those elements worked? And I, I guess I should say the other kind of meta element. I mean, this movie goes so far as to when we meet Keanu Reeves in this movie, he is plugged back into the Matrix. Only this time, he is a sort of wealthy video game developer who has turned the mate like the Matrix trilogy is a video game. <laughs> And there are sort of signifiers in the world around him of stuff from the Matrix to make him think that, like, he just sort of pulled this stuff from his day-to-day life. And his boss, played by Jonathan Groff, who we later learn is Smith. Um, <laughs> really fun performance, I gotta say. Yeah, John- it Jonathan is. Groff is just really having job. a fun time. Um, <laughs> but he goes as far as to, like, bring Neo into his office and say, hey our partners Warner brothers want us to make a fourth matrix. (laughs) They're going to do it with or without you. So can you just work your magic and figure it out? And like that, that clearly feels like totally ripped from a probably personal experience that Lana Wachowski had of there, there were, there were rumors for years. I think of Warner brothers trying to reboot the matrix with new people and I have to imagine that they were just like, look, we're going to do this with her without you. Like, we're extending a courtesy. And then this is Lana coming in and being like, oh, you want you want a fourth Matrix movie? I'll show you. And then <laughs> sort of just sort of like, like, like a, you know, a two-year-old just like scribbling all over the painting with like crayons and stuff like that. And, and I, I, I like this movie in that I enjoy the sort of like, bonkers nature of it and her just sort of like messing around and having fun with all of this stuff and and i can understand how some fans probably feel a little bit kind of like offended by the idea of her Mm -hmm. coming in and just being like it doesn't matter it all doesn't matter and then at the end being like but it's all actually about love and about uh keanu reeves and carrie Ann moss being just two hot people that swag surf the multiverse or whatever it is Yeah, she definitely does a, a great job of all that. Like I said, I think that element uh, that works. I think that's something mm-hmm. that um, it was kind of in in some ways. I feel like the only way this could have been done, and so I think she does do a great job of that. And it's kind of in comparison to Don't Look Up, it's kind of the meta is aspect of it is kind of um, overwhelming because it's ingrained in everything in this film, but in a way right. that's more positive. Whereas in the other movie we talked about it was too much in a negative way. Um, I, I do think, and yeah, Groff is, is great as Smith, um, as Smith. I actually think he, I prefer him over um, Smith in, in the third movie. Um, you know, like I, I just, uh, kind anyway. of a big pro a big flaw in that movie is like Smith sort of returns in two and you're like, why? But he's only in a few scenes. And then yeah. like in the third one, it's like, neo is jesus and smith is the antichrist and you're like what (laughs) yeah and i kind of really liked his storyline it wasn't like the storyline in this movie right you know smith was there but it's not like hugely um important to the plot whereas like neil patrick harris's character is Mm -hmm. is obviously the uh the bad Another person who's having a really, really fun time. Yes, I think everyone is kind of having a fun time. Um, But yeah, he he definitely is. And, you know, he works for me. Um, I I don't know. There's a couple scenes with him that I feel like are my least favorite scenes. But then there's a couple Mm. with him that I I love him. And so, you know, I'm kind of mixed on that. But 
I, I think everyone is having a fun time. And you, you mentioned like in the end, it's all about love. I actually think that the, you know, Neo Trinity love story has always been kind of the story in all mm-hmm. these movies. And so I'm glad that that was like kind of the concentration in, in a lot of ways with this one. So let's let's talk about some things that maybe kind of didn't work for us in this movie. I think the biggest one for me that I I will concede is the action is not action, very yes. well staged. And I think with the exception of I really enjoyed the kind of final climactic set piece, which is like the motorcycle chase where mm-hmm. um, I, I won't fully explain the, the sort of tech <laughs> logic of it, but there's a yeah. mob of people like chasing them and people are jumping out of windows Swarm. and then eventually like Keanu and Carrie Ann Moss just like jump off a building and are like flying through the air like that that sequence I think is the most fun in the movie of just for how like heightened and over the top it is but for a series that really um but it takes a whole movie to get to that (laughs) right (laughs) to get to the best action sequence yeah right and I think for a series that was so groundbreaking in the way it staged and visualized action sequences that's a little bit of a disappointment and I don't know whether that's because maybe Lily Wachowski was the one that was a, had a better eye for how to stage and sort of shoot action scenes. I don't know whether that's because um I'm blanking on his name. Whoever um choreographed the the action scenes in the original films who I believe also did it for uh like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and even Kill Bill, I believe you know, he's not involved with this. I don't know whether there was another reason for that, like COVID or something, but I, yeah, they just sort of feel really lackluster and kind of oddly staged. And that, that is a disappointing for, for a series that, you know, the action sequences, even in some of the lesser movies are known for being sort of Mm -hmm. like really spectacular and will kind of blow you off your seat. And with the exception of that finale, these just sort of feel a little they're like very aw- underwhelming. Right. And they feel kind of awkwardly strung together and and a bit kind of like confusing to follow in places. No, I agree. I think that was one of the biggest uh, letdowns with me for, with this film. And, you know, as far as the reason, you know, who knows, it could have been any of those those things you said. But there really isn't any like iconic moments in this film with action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they spend a lot of time you know, again, because of the the meta aspect, like looking at past scenes and past things that happen. And it's kind of just a reminder of, well, you've, you know, you could have done this, you've done this before, and this was really cool. But other than that, like you said, that bike scene at the end, there really isn't uh, a, a really cool. I mean, there's a couple, I guess, with, um, with Jessica um, Bugs, who is a great new character. Yes. Um, in the, in, you know, in that. So I guess that's something, but I don't know, even in that first scene where they recreate Trinity from the first, uh, and it's a different person playing her, like even that scene reminds me how how cool it was, you know, and I kind of wish that the action had been less underwhelming. Um, and some of the action also, it's just not done as well. Um, like, you know, partially, I think the editing, but also just like the effects mm-hmm. are, you know, underwhelming. And for a series that's known for that, I think that's definitely not the best decision to do that but and i think some people were looking for that more right. uh, at least you know from some of the twitter discourse i've seen i i'm trying to avoid it right i <laughs> I, I think the other kind of maybe 
complaint I'll have with the the movie or, or flaw I'll have with the movie, and I'm curious whether this section works a little better for me on rewatch is the moment when Neo kind of exits the matrix and we enter the real world. And all of a sudden the movie now really aggressively has to like catch you up on everything that's happened since the third movie. And that's the one section of the movie where I kind of felt my attention sort of Mm -hmm. drifting a bit. And I think that's the one section of the movie where it kind of drags a bit. And I'm a, I'm a bit sort of confused by some of the the kind of explanations and and mythology building that happens there. You know, uh, Yaya Abdul Mateen II comes back is in this movie as a a sort of digital version of Morpheus, and I think he's really fun in the movie and enjoyed watching him. But then, like once we, I kind of don't understand what that character is, and it's <laughs> sort of like initially seems like this kind of computerized version of morpheus to sort of bring neo back out of the matrix but then also like that computerized version is able to like materialize itself in the real world and interact i i just sort of became confused on like so what's the deal with this i i just like don't fully understand and almost feel like they sort of explain too much that character to the point of like it becomes really confusing no, it's and, absolutely the best yes. way to say it. Is it like they spend too much time explaining and to a point that it just like doesn't make sense. It's right. just like, wait, what? What's right. happening? Yeah. And and I've seen some people complaining of like when they re-enter the real world, there's now good machines and bad machines. Yeah. All the machines aren't bad. And there's a weird like, is this movie being satirical about the way that like franchises will shoehorn in kind of like cute cuddly characters for toys and stuff like that or is this like a weird misstep of the movie of like the robots like nuzzling people like their dogs or something or giving people like high fives or something when there's an action scene and um it it this both is i think a much lighter movie with a much more of a sense of humor about itself than the other matrix movies are but I, I I don't know that that whole section in the kind of quote unquote real world once Neo is awakened that's the section that kind of dragged the movie a little bit for me and didn't quite have the the fun spark and kind of imagination of all the scenes set within the Matrix. Yeah, no, I agree, and I I wouldn't be surprised if we get like I think it's Squiddy. Is that the uh, <laughs> squiddy figures and toys and stuff? I have a feeling if I gave like one of my nephews like a plush of that, they would just sort of be like, what is this? This is like a <laughs> slug? Like what? <laughs> right. And you would not be able to explain what it is. No. So you're like, yes, yes, it is. That's what that is. Um, <laughs> or I would just sit them down and be like, so you see the it's all about Once the nature of control and yeah. <laughs> free will. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I do think there is more of a sense of humor in this. And I feel like, you know, those other movies like Neo, the concentration so much is like saving, you know, the world. And, and it's a very selfless thing. Whereas I feel like in a lot of ways, it's like saving Neo and Trinity in this movie, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I mean, it was always sad having them both <laughs> be, you know, killed in the in the end of the other one but you know it was just like the sacrifice that had to happen but in this movie there is that kind of there's humor and there's also that heartwarming you know element of this you know being reunited and i feel like that's more about 
their relationship or them being reunited than it is actually like saving the world. So there's the stakes aren't the same, you know, and that's a good thing, honestly. Um, but yeah, the part where he gets awoken and he like, we got to get caught up on what's happening. I'm honestly like, I don't even know if someone asked me right now to explain what happened that I would even be able to remotely touch on it. Like where's Zion? Um, where is Zion? <laughs> like they, I, I don't like, they spend so much time, you know, and we obviously get Jada Pinkett, um, back in this film, which, you know, is fine, <laughs> but Apparently I really don't like her scenes. Trailer and, and like people were like, Whoa, spoiler. And like, I watched that trailer and like, it did not even, I, fe- I felt stupid afterwards. Cause I was like, Oh, that did not even compute to me that that was Jada Pickett Smith under a bunch <laughs> of makeup. I was just like, cool. Old, is that like a new old lady Oracle character or something like that? <laughs> I, I did catch that it was her in that trailer. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like it, it's, I was kind of, it's cool that they have her character come back, but I also didn't love like some of her scenes and, mm-hmm. and you know, like the, the way that they wrote her character and, and some of the, I don't know, it really was where it lagged the most. Like, I agree. I think it was, it was borderline boring in that section, but, um, and also, I don't know the whole like machines, the sentinels, uh, as I think they like to be called or mm-hmm. sentience or whatever, <laughs> they make that distinction, like don't call them machines, but, um, you know, I, I get it as like an evolution type of thing like that there would be, but there's it's not really explained in a way that makes a lot of sense other than Squiddy is is cute. And <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Same with like some of the stuff about like awakening Trinity, um, like taking her out. Like, I don't know, some of those explanations, it seemed like narratively could have been better explain without being over explained if that makes sense yeah i think those scenes make more emotional sense to me of just sort of mm-hmm. like one one of them needs the other and you know I, th- I think this is a movie that i've been very fascinated to like read breakdowns of from trans critics because lana wachowski is herself mm-hmm. a trans woman and i think there's kind of an interesting trans allegory to this of like mm-hmm you know it's not just neo who is it's not just the male side that's the 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 one or the savior it's like trinity is kind of the other part to that and that there is sort of like a a binary there and a spectrum Mm -hmm. there and that being kind of like an interesting allegory to to work with and kind of visually explore in the movie that you know i don't i don't feel like i'm necessarily the most qualified person to to make that analogy but i think was something that kind of popped out to me in uh in a few spaces um i I just sort of think my kind of biggest problem with that that section we're talking about that drags is also like the movie is working best when it is sort of like the mythology stuff is is just sort of like window dressing Mm -hmm. and we can just sort of play fast and loose with it but the core thing that needs to be sort of taken seriously and that's the focus is the the emotional element right is the emotional element and this love story between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, which just like, I hope I'm that hot when I get to to that age. That's just like really <laughs> embarrassing. I don't think yeah, I'm no, I, I, that gracefully, but, right? um, as both of them, honestly, um, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like I actually thought that at one point I was like, they don't even look 
how long ago did the matrix come out right like what's happening i was um, like maybe i need to spend a few years in the the matrix and i'm only like in my late 20s at this point but like i'm already getting like back pain and stuff like that but um no i agree you know, that like, was my I, favorite aspect also like you know there's definitely a few moments where they do show the importance of trinity and you know how much of a badass she really is which is it's something I loved about it. It's also funny. Her other name is Tiffany and she like hates that. And it's just mm-hmm. perfect. <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, what and, I was saying, so like, like when it is in that. Oh, I was oh, just going to say ahead. what I was saying. I, I was, was only confusing. Mention, like, like <laughs> we're doing it again. Um, what I was going to say, no, what's go confusing ahead, though, is the part <laughs> where they're waking her up. Like I didn't fully understand like the dynamics of mm. how, like with the <laughs> sentience and then the, you know, that was what I was referring to, but everything like with them, especially like the, the love and everything like that. I think I read somewhere, this is the most romantic movie of the year or something like that. Like, I do think that part is where it really shines. And I, you know, that's why you, you nailed it on the head with everything. Like when Keanu is alone and he goes uh, without her and it's out of the matrix. I don't know. It just kind of loses that a little bit. Yeah, and that's, I think, also to kind of, I, I was sort of going to a similar place that you were in that just, like, that stuff with, like, how we wake her up, and it just all the stuff kind of out in the real world, all of a sudden that mythology then has to become important again, and so it's almost the movie kind of, like, has been playing fast and loose with, like, what is important, and then in that moment it's like, but actually, you, we need to, like, really explain all the dynamics of this Mm -hmm. stuff, and you're like, I don't know, I kind of, like, haven't been paying that much attention, and now I need to, uh, like, fully understand, like, what Zion is again. Um, So, well... I'm glad we got it. I'm glad it's it's weird at the least. I'm glad it exists. I, I, I... hope that people can have um you know productive conversations about it whether they like it or or don't like it um because Be nice. you know i think it is <laughs> yes i think it's a great movie to unpack with other people just you know be nice about it yeah you know people can have different opinions on movies it, it, it can happen it's it, it's true like you, you can be kind and take other people's opinions and have actual meaningful conversations that differ on you know how you took the film you know it's possible try um but yeah no i'm glad it exists i i still have like a a positive on on it overall and do you think we're in the matrix jesse um I don't know. Watch that documentary, which I think we actually talked about you and I, think I on the show. I think we did. It's coming full circle. Maybe we are. Yeah. No. Well, um. uh, Christy, thank you so much for for stopping by this week. And um, excuse me, I'm going to plug back into the Matrix and <laughs> just enjoy the rest of my life and hope I age as gracefully as Keanu Reeves. Very welcome to have in this special segment. My fellow uh, North Carolina film critic, Gabe Lampalone Bella. Did, hey, I get that, did I get that last name correctly? Close. Oh, Close. God damn it. Lampalone <laughs> <laughs> Bella. Lampalone Bella. Yeah. I, I, look, was rehearsing it ahead of time in my head. We, we can talk about, you know, Lampalone Bella and how it means a beautiful dove all day long. Oh, I mean, that's if, really sweet. <laughs> if you want to do that, we can. I'm sure we can get some sort of film comparison going. A, a um, little a little dove or a spider-man slinging through slinging well through the sky. you know in my dream world 
maybe <laughs> may i like to think i'm more of a peter parker but in actuality i'm more of the duff yeah uh so have you on this segment uh to talk about spider-man because i know you have been very ecstatic about the new spider-man movie yes. i've been holding off talking about it on the podcast to make sure people see it because yes. people people be nervous about spoilers out there and wanted to give the listeners ample time to go see the movie so that we can just talk about this movie exactly um, after it's made over you know a billion dollars and has kind of just nestled its place as the number one film at the box office since it got released yes so i first want to get your feelings how 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 did you feel going into this new spider-man movie because i i feel like you're a little bit more ecstatic about it than i am which is maybe something that we can work through on <laughs> on on this this podcast i'm not someone who dislikes it but i maybe wanted to have on someone who was sort of like over the moon for it to help you know convince me that maybe i'm just <laughs> a grouchy old man or something like that no 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 you know you and i share a lot of similar opinions so i'm sure we'll probably have some similarities even in this but you know the biggest thing man and it's the cheesiest answer i can give being a fan of this character getting to see what we do see and mm -hmm. since we're going to talk spoilers, we'll just go ahead and bring it up. Getting all three Spider-Men that I grew up with mm -hmm. together on the screen again was just joy. I yeah. mean, just pure cinematic joy. I mean, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said after three viewings now, it's hard not to take notice of some questionable story beats. Sure, yes. But... As a fan, it delivers enough of the goods in a way that doesn't feel like a Warner Brothers or DC movie. Yes, I, I will say I, I mentioned this earlier in the episode that this conversation is running on uh, earlier in the episode. Talk had a conversation about the new Matrix movie and sort of the surreal aspect of seeing both of those within a 12 hour period. And both are movies so clearly like addressing fan service stuff and and spider-man doing it in this very like sincere kind of straightforward way of like we're going to bring back all of the, these actors who played all of these characters throughout the different iterations of spider-man and then matrix having this much more let's let's antagonistic relationship to its history and its iconography um and so that just being a surreal experience my kind of feeling i'm i'm like you spider-man was probably one of my two favorite superheroes growing up it was like batman was the dc one i was always drawn most to spider-man was the marvel superhero i was always most drawn to and i maybe like you don't have much of a relationship to the, the andrew garfield movies let's let's maybe you know just back us up and talk about yeah. the previous iterations of spider-man and how we we got here i mean i'm a great admirer of the Sam Raimi movies. Um, I, I think are those, do you feel like those are kind of underrated now? Like, like I've, I've been meaning to go back and rewatch them. Cause I feel like I always see people pulling clips from them on like Twitter and stuff and being like, man, rem remember when superhero movies used to look like this. And like, there's, there's some really great filmmaking going on that we probably just like, I mean, I like those movies a lot, but like probably Same took here. for granted at the time that they came out. You know, I, I think definitely with somebody like Sam Raimi kind of running the show for as long as he did and how mm -hmm. he was essentially 
you know, the equivalent of who the Russo brothers are now. Right. It's fun to see him try things out. And actually, before I saw No Way Home, I went back and watched the Raimi trilogy and the Andrew Garfield trilogy. Oh. It was, you know, had its moments there. When we get into Garfield, I could talk about that for hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as the Raimi films go, you know, I, I can't sit here and, and apologize for Spider-Man 3. I, I I will defend some of the, the choices in that movie that some people think are questionable. Like, I actually think emo jazz hands Peter Parker is actually, like, I rewatched some of those clips the other day because I was like, let's, I, I feel like that making more sense to me than anyone else, than, like, everyone else thought at the time of just sort of, like, Peter Parker's a nerd. Of course he thinks this is what cool is like. <laughs> and then like watch those scenes on YouTube like earlier this week to prepare for this podcast and was like, this is some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen. And like, were we as a culture just like, man, he's Sam Raimi. He did this like corny ass thing in the Spider-Man three. And it's just like, no, it's supposed to be goofy. Um, I and think that movie's got more of the problems of like, it's got like 80 different villains or that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean? It's got oh, like yeah. three or four different villains and there's a little too much going on in it for oh. to, to, to sort of uphold its structure. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, and it's funny watching that film so close to no way home mm -hmm. because I think you hit the nail on the head. The problem with Spider-Man three, especially is it's, it's there's too many cooks in the kitchen. There's yes. too many characters um, and no one is given enough time to really take a breath and get to know anybody before the action starts, you know, and, and going back kind of, since we're delving through some others before we get to the main course, what makes the Raimi trilogy so interesting is they're pretty condensed films in terms of characters and stakes and especially coming off of Spider-Man two and how great Alfred Molina was as Doc Ock. Mm -hmm. getting these villains who you know fans around the world were excited to see on the big screen and kind of pushing them into archetypes mm -hmm. it never works and i mean i will agree with what you said in terms of emo peter parker you know fix this damn door is going to be one of my favorite <laughs> lines ever but that movie doesn't fit with the superhero movie that raimi wants to build mm -hmm. and i think for fans who are a fan or are not a fan, the biggest compliment I can give is it's very easy to appreciate what Raimi was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And especially with emo Peter Parker, the argument that I read on Twitter somewhere that I really liked, if anything, it showed Tobey Maguire could do physical comedy. He He's really funny in it. It's... Yeah. I mean, and, you know, we're going from Seabiscuit, you know, films yeah. like that to this. It's nice to see him have a little bit of fun for a change and not always mm. be dour. Yeah. But man, we get to that muddled third act and it is just a slog. Yeah. It's it's you can't tell where anyone is in correlation to anyone else. It's a cavalcade of effects. And it's the same problem I have overall with the Raimi trilogy. Mm -hmm. When they try to get into the more effects heavy stuff, it kind of just becomes a barrage of color that you get glimpses of from time to time of what's actually happening, but it never congeals in a way that's all that interesting to me. 
Interesting. I've 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 been meaning I really need to go back and rewatch those because I I think I'll probably bring up his Spider Man two multiple times on this podcast. Is to you know to me that is like on the kind of like pantheon up there with like something like Dark Knight for like about as good of a superhero movie as we can make. Um, and I I just really enjoy how melodramatic those movies are they're very very heightened they they're almost like a soap opera in terms of the the emotions and you know uh, a friend of mine texted me rewatching some of them and he's like people are kind of just like saying what they feel really openly a lot in those movies and it's, it's i kind of love that aspect of it of everything feels very very heightened in in there and like they are serious but it's not this like gritty like oh, Zack no. Snyder um what if every time we fought it was like 9-11 sort of like <laughs> seriousness it's 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 like you know what this is a, a comic book and let's like make all of the emotions sort of like big and outsized exactly everything's not you know a 9-11 backdrop and raining right <laughs> and you know that especially with Spider-Man 2 what I have to give hats off to Raimi for is he's made fight sequences early on you know, before we get to the big climactic generator battle mm -hmm. that you can see and you can see, even if it's visual effects, the choreography that goes into it mm -hmm. and moments like that, especially, you know, being someone who is a little bit younger, seeing that for the first time is something I'm, I'm never going to forget. Oh yeah. I, I remember seeing, I think I didn't see the first Raimi Spider-Man in the theater. I think I watched it like on dvd or vhs or whatever we had back oh, then yeah. in the early vhs over here yes but but was kind of like uh did remember as a kid going to see spider-man 2 in the theater and that just being this like ecstatic experience being like a oh, big yeah. spider-man fan as a kid um what's what's your opinion on the garfield movies because i we're gonna probably talk a lot about garfield in relation to this new movie i think the both of the garfield movies are really really bad i do too um okay. i'm glad I we're think, on the same page <laughs> yeah i was I'm, I'm glad we don't have to get into an argument over this one you know i at the end of the day re-watching the garfield movies i i don't even blame garfield or emma stone because i think they're the most interesting things in the movie i blame mark webb yes um i don't think his style of filmmaking fits in a superhero story plain and simple Mm -hmm. um, and especially with Amazing Spider-Man 2, it feels more like studio interference than anything. Mm -hmm. And any essence of him is gone, which kind of, especially upon a rewatch, makes me retroactively like Amazing Spider-Man more. Or dislike yeah. it a little bit more, yeah. I should say. Because it never, there's no substance to anything. Everything is glossy and it looks shiny. And I mean... We could spend an hour talking about Electro being a tech DJ, <laughs> but we're never given any room to breathe with Spider-Man or really understand what he thinks about his situation, mm -hmm. and especially when he's Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. And it it's never as interesting because, you know people remember a lot of the intrigue plots with Peter Parker's parents in those films and how that was going to lead into something. Those movies have so much plot. It's like in insane how much like extra stuff that we don't need is kind of baked into those from what I remember. Yeah. 
And I also feeling like they were the, they felt like the Spider-Man movies for like the post twilight years of like, can we make Peter Parker like a like cute emo boy or something like that? And I like, I agree with you. I think like Garfield and stone have great chemistry in those movies. I'm kind of glad they were a little bit able to escape that world for a for a bit especially emma stone um like i remember like seeing amazing spider-man 2 and then when her character dies at the end i like not feeling sadness but being like oh thank god good for her oh thank god I don't, emma stone gets to do other stuff right now my <laughs> my, my favorite actress of her generation is not going to be bolded to being spider-man's girlfriend for four more movies oh man i hope she can go hang out you know with ryan gosling and dance for a little bit that's just uh. gonna make the world better no and and you're kind of right on the money there especially with amazing spider-man 2 and her death sequence that doesn't even hit the way that you feel like they intended. Right. Because everything is just so ridiculous. I mean, Dane DeHaan comes out looking like, you know, some deformed gremlin, bless him. And then Paul Giamatti is there as a Russian. I mean, I don't know if I can call him the rhino because that's Isn't not the rhino Isn't he only I in remember. like one scene, like at the very end, he just comes out and he's just like, I'm rhino. And like, that's how the movie ends. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's this bit that really wants to set up a sequel and Andrew Garfield. I mean, he's got the quips down for days, but it's, it's basically like you're looking at a, a painting mm-hmm. and, and you sit there and you go. I know the painter wanted to say something with this, but he didn't. And that's what I feel with the Amazing Spider-Man films, I guess, duo. They're movies that just kind of result in nothing. Yeah, There's no investment or stake. And I think now that we've moved into the sort of MCU Spider-Man, um, I've I've enjoyed Tom Holland a lot as Spider-Man. Um, I remember being really, really surprised by Homecoming, and it's it's probably here's going to be my my sort of like atom bomb hot take on <laughs> on this new Spider-Man movie. I think No Way Home is my least favorite of the Tom Holland movies. Of just like what I enjoyed about the first two especially homecoming is kind of their looseness to them. And it just sort of being kind of like, I feel like as we've, what, what was fun about homecoming was it felt like a sort of a teen comedy, like, like a John Hughes teen comedy. But what if like Ferris Bueller was Spider-Man or Ferris Bueller had superpowers and how low stakes it was, I think is what I found refreshing about it. And slowly the Tom Holland movies, I feel like they've gotten, bigger and bigger in which like um far from home is that the second one the one with electro not not even electro now i can't even mysterio, rem- mysterio yes um who i can't believe i can't remember that name because that was one of my favorite villains as a kid um but you know that one being a bit bigger a bit even more bombastic but still kind of had like a wacky teen movie energy to it and then now this one that teen energy feels a little smaller. Um, yeah. Of course, the other one to kind of bring in just so we can kind of get more into this movie is Spider-Verse, the, the excellent animated yes. one, which, um, you know, is is another movie I feel like I'm going to bring up multiple times when talking about this new one because I feel like there, there are some very direct comparisons and 
Uh, I'll I'll just you know preview by saying I think my experience with this new one is a little bit hindered by constantly thinking about Spider Verse and specifically Spider Man Two, but um, we can unpack that more. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely unpack because I'll say Spider Verse is definitely a hindrance for me because I think that's a film much like Spider Man Homecoming in a way. No mm. one really knew what they were getting into. I right. mean, you know, we, we've got, at the time, we had a new Spider-Man and Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. And then we had this new 3D animation with Miles Morales. Mm-hmm. And it surprised people because the heart was really genuine. Yeah. And I, I 100% agree with what you said about this new trilogy in terms of the stakes starting out small. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially with Homecoming, that's probably why it's in my top five mcu movies yeah because it's so identifiable in a lot of ways and you know as great as michael keaton is as the vulture he's kind of the least interesting part of the movie Mm -hmm. like ned peter and mj just kind of hanging out or briefly trading snarky comments with each other Mm -hmm. is so much more relatable and just enjoyable than anything we had gotten before um, especially in the Mark Webb films. And again, kind of like you with Far From Home, it's fun, but it felt like more of the same to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's no dig against John Watts. I can't wait to see what he does with Fantastic Four. And I'm a big fan of Cop Car, his first movie with Kevin oh, Bacon. have not seen, but I'll check Highly it out. recommend. Highly recommend. Um, so going into this newest No Way Home, I mean, I'm sure you're right with me. We follow this entertainment news. There were mm. rumors and speculations and yes, l- leaked photos. I, I almost did not. I I kind of had this whole thing sort of spoiled for me because I was a bit sort of like suspicious about the things that I sort of expected with the exception of uh, maybe what happens at the very end and what happens to poor Aunt May in in this movie. I would yes. say though though other than those, I I would did not have any anxiety about like oh what if I about having the the revelation that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were going to be in this movie spoiled because I feel like that was rumored for a long while. At least I expected Tobey Maguire was maybe going to show up. Andrew Garfield. We need to give that man an Oscar because I fully believed because he in public over the since leaving the Spider-Man role has mm-hmm. just seemed done with it. And and he has seemed very uh willing to just be upfront and candid about not oh, yeah. really enjoying about loving this character, but not enjoying being on those movies. And I just remember I'm sure you saw the videos of like the tick tick boom press tour where he <laughs> people were like, Are you in Spider-Man? And every every time he was asked, he would look more and more exhausted to the point of just being like, Guys, I'm sorry. I don't want to make you mad, but I'm not like I'm done with this. I'm not coming back. I'm so th- sick of this stuff. I mean, I'm definitely in the boat with you. You know, Toby Maguire, I think, probably played it smart to where he just didn't say anything. Right. And that's enough. But with Garfield you know, he, he was kind of just a victim of poor timing. You right. know, he had two movies, Tammy Faye and then Tick, Tick, Boom. Oh, that's really right. <laughs> close proximity to one another. Yeah. And then Spider-Man in December. I mean, that is the worst, like, marketing schedule for him to have to basically repeat for months on end. No, he's not in Spider-Man. 
And like you said, I don't blame him for no. wanting to be done with this franchise. After the web movies, makes a lot of sense. And you and I know he can do a lot better. Yeah. I... Which is... No, go ahead. No, I, I was only um, just going to say of like, it, it felt like a... Uh a more effective press rollout of the like when Benedict Cumberbatch had to say for like six months, like I'm not con and people were like, or, or when Christoph Waltz was like, I'm not Blofeld and people were like, yeah, sure. Whatever, dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's exactly what it was. And I think Garfield is the reigning champ of lying to interviewers Yes, because he is damn good at it after this <laughs> onslaught. Him and Joaquin Phoenix, who hasn't had to do anything like this, but if you've ever just seen any Joaquin Phoenix Letterman interviews, like, Phoenix will just, like, make... I mean, he convinced a bunch of people for a while that he was going to be, like, a rapper. That's that's how good at this Joaquin Phoenix has been. You know, what I will say is, if anybody wants to see the caliber of Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> in an interview setting, look up last year's New York Film Festival Q&A for Come On, Come On. <laughs> and you will see a side of the actor that deserves all of the Oscars. Um, just insane. But in terms of Spider-Man, I guess we can just get into kind of how the big three fit in the movie. Yeah, let's let's do it. Let's let's fully jump off the diving board and and immerse ourselves in, in talking about every facet of this movie. So I will say, as somebody who is definitely a Marvel fan, but not a diehard read every comic book sort of person mm -hmm. seeing them really craft three distinct versions of peter parker that felt organic to where those characters came from in their own trilogies was probably my favorite part of the film and much like the previous watts movies like when they're all working together in the lab mm -hmm. the initial scene in ned's house when Andrew and Toby essentially have to go up against each other. Yes. Like, that was great. It was fun. It was breezy. You know, for five to ten minutes, you kind of forget about these world-ending or world-ending for Peter Parker stakes. And it kind of solidifies the fact why I think this Watts trilogy, while it all isn't perfect, as endearing fan service, it is the new bar. Mm -hmm. because it knows how to wink at the camera without slamming you over the head. I think another thing that's kind of like impressed me about it um, is I think these, these most recent Spider-Man movies, I think really understand the essence of that character. And I think really understand may maybe more more perfectly with homecoming but the best spider-man stories i feel like always inherently understand that like spider-man is at his best when he kind of has his back against the wall and when it is the stories about the struggle of a teenage kid that's just trying to be a teenage or a guy in his 20s in the case of the toby Maguire movies who's just trying to live a normal life but has the burden of like the superhero stuff just keeps like entering his life and messing up with it. And that he's always just sort of like, you know, aggressively juggling all of these things in his life. And I like that this movie was able to just sort of understand that that's the dramatic tension of this movie. And even though there are these sort of big cosmic stakes, it doesn't, 
it doesn't get too bogged down in kind of like the end of the world stakes of of this stuff and i feel like it it i never felt this movie got to the place of even with some of my kind of quibbles with it that we'll kind of get to here later on like this didn't have kind of like that point in like shang chi which i i I probably like the parts of shang chi i i liked i probably enjoyed more than anything in this spider-man movie but shang chi has that kind of third act dip off where you can really feel like uh, now we got to go to Narnia or whatever this is. And now gotta we got to find the fight. magical item. Right. And now there's like face huggers that are going to come out of the mountain and we got to like fight a dragon <laughs> and it's going to keep getting bigger. And, bi- you know, this yeah. never felt like this felt like it was always sort of rooted in whatever the personal stakes are for this character. It never felt like we had to sort of like, you never felt the sort of artificial construction of having to sort of, build these larger sort of like end of world stakes that you know kind of just don't become that interesting and i think like the marvel movies that have suffered marvel sometimes has a problem in the movies of like the villains and the sort of threat in the movie is just sort of like i want to conquer this species of people or i'm going to rip a hole in the center of the earth i'm totally making up stuff but like rip a hole in the center of the earth just because power blah or something yeah and this domination right and this kept the drama i think so centered on what is at stake for peter parker and so centered on the character and i think that's part of what succeeds about it yeah and you know to kind of go off what you've said with previous Marvel movies, in a way, I feel the same way about this that I do a lot of Marvel films, mm-hmm. to where I think the first two thirds are pretty close to perfect. Mm-hmm. And the third act, not counting the epilogue, but let's say the third act battle mm-hmm. sequence on the Empire State Building, doesn't quite hit in the same way. And right. it doesn't isn't as emotionally investive now you know i'd be lying if i said seeing these three actors kind of riff with one another and you know andrew garfield declaring that he is spider-man number three is still i think just a genius bit and shows why he can do comedy in ways that we haven't seen from him before but you know the entire minutiae of peter trying to convince the dean of admissions at mit to give his friends a second chance yeah you know we're not all I'm not an MIT graduate. I can tell you that right now. No. But it's, like you said, it's nice to see a kid kind of scramble just to get his life figured out. I mean, Doctor Strange doesn't want to help him at first. He's like, why? Yeah. We did this. And, and that makes the story much more relatable. I think that's the thing I was probably, like, struggling to get at is I think, you know, using something like Eternals for an example, like, like that's a hard movie to fully, like, grasp onto. I think because it it doesn't quite have the emotional core that you're looking for. And Shang-Chi having that kind of father-son emotional core, that's like that works as a through line for that movie until you get to like the third act and it's like, but actually it's about stopping a demon race from taking everyone's souls or something like that. Yeah. And this, I think they found the through line of it is it is about peter parker trying to sort of maintain these relationships with people in his life and sort of find this balance between b 
being able to be a a teenager or a college kid, but also having superpowers and the struggle of keeping both of those parts of his life separate when inevitably they're going to wash over each other and complicate each other. And, you know, that is easily the most interesting part of the film, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm-hmm. If to get into kind, maybe not nitpicks, but areas that I think the film could have fleshed out a little bit more. I like that they've made this Peter Parker the same level of like moral righteousness of like a Steve Rogers, Captain America, Mm. because he wants to fix these villains. Yes. And as fans who have seen these movies, you know, there's no fixing these guys. Right. That's a cool idea to kind of deal with this good versus evil on a scale that isn't okay, I'm going to punch you, you're going to punch me, we're going to keep punching each other until one of us stops. Yes. No, this kid wants to use his brain and try to come up with a way to help them. Now, when we get into things with Aunt May later on, Mm -hmm. I think some of that moral righteousness feels a little bit wedged in for the sake of a plot in terms of like when she, when Green Goblin shows up at Feast's doorstep and she needs to help him and tries to convince Peter to help him. But I thought it really fit well with the Peter Parker that we've established, mm-hmm. who has already gone through so much. I mean, you know, like they make a joke about it later in the film. He's already been to space, fought yeah. a purple alien, didn't fight any black goo, but this no. kid's been mm-hmm. around. Like he's done stuff in his life. And that to me makes the more emotional stuff here, particularly, and we'll just say it, Aunt May's death scene, Mm -hmm. that much more effective. Yes. Because we've seen this guy go through so much, and now he's having to deal with this really human, intimate, kind of devastating moment. Yeah. And And, and, and the climax of the movie, or, you know, the final act of the movie is an act of of selflessness. It it, it mm -hmm. is sort of him having to make a sacrifice and and realizing that you know he can't have these sort of parts of his life totally separate he has to they're always going to overlap over each other and so i think even in the sort of like you know big cosmic sort of universe altering ending that this has it's all rooted in character which i think makes it work more as an ending than what sometimes happens with these superhero movies and let's just give a quick shout out to the dynamic between jacob Batalon, zendaya and tom holland yeah i mean great chemistry great chemistry more relatable and identifiable um the at the end of the film and i'm if any film person out there who knows me knows i'm I'm not a huge crier, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, we see a lot of movies, we know the rhythms, we know how we're going to get manipulated. Um, when Peter decides to basically do the spell again and has yes. to say goodbye to Mary Jane or Michelle James, that scene absolutely crushed me because we've had three films with these characters, how their relationship was laid out was got me so invested and it really reminded you in a way unlike other spider-man movies they're just kids Mm -hmm. they don't know if they're ever going to see each other again at this point 
And to really sell that and really sell like the fear that I don't think we see in a lot of superhero movies, especially from the protagonists, it was such a welcome change of pace Mm -hmm. compared to, you know, the typical third act explosion bonanza. Right. Like that. So let's maybe talk about all the people who are kind of come back for this movie. Okay. Um, which I, I feel like will be a fun conversation. Uh, I feel like these kind of range everywhere from sort of like someone who's like really fun coming back and is like really game to there's, there's some people in here that it's just sort of like, I guess if I got to put my kids through college or add another zero to the check and I'll be here. Right. What time I can be there between two and three. Um, I would say the two biggest kind of takeaways from, for me, I mean, they've got to be Willem Dafoe and Andrew Garfield. I, I would, I would hard agree that Um, uh, both of those guys steal the, the scenes they're in. I think, you know, maybe this is a time for us to talk about the two previous Spider-Men. Um, yes. You know, I think I enjoyed seeing Tobey Maguire back. I would probably have the biggest connection to him because I was, you know, the right age to get really excited about those movies when he was Spider-Man. Um, right. I think he kind of comes more into this as like, and granted, Tobey Maguire was a much more understated Peter Parker than uh, Tom Holland or Andrew Garfield was, but you know, he kind of comes into this movie a bit like, yeah, I'm like the older, you know, like the older guy who like comes back to the fraternity house when he's like 30 and is maybe like, yeah, I'll kind of like say hi to everyone. But like, no, no, I'm not going to beer chug with you. No, no, thanks. I'm I'm going home, actually. Um, As Andrew Garfield says in the movie. He's the cool youth pastor. Yes, yes. He he. Even even notable that like he just sort of walks in and just what looks like what Tobey Maguire probably just like would wear down to the Starbucks around the corner or something like that. Um, he probably was just sort of like, no, I'm I'm not. I'll wear the suit for one day, guys. Like I'm 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 doing you a favor. And uh, Garfield comes in just a ball of energy and is just having so much fun and is like just. A, just hurricane of charisma and it that thrilled me because like i hate those two movies that he's in and so have like no relationship to him as spider-man and for him to come in and be i think the most entertaining of this kind of collection of heroes was delightful and he's so charming and is so like earnestly in love with this character. I I just had like a ball watching him just sort of like dart around this movie and have this kind of like manic goofy energy. Same here, same here. And you know, I'm I'm not one of these people who jumps on fan campaigns cuz I think right. A lot of times those things can be more of a detriment than a blessing. Mm-hmm. Um but I am totally on board if the Marvel team wants to give him at least another shot to finish his trilogy uh-huh i say that in quotes <laughs> because this film shows that marvel and maybe to some extent some new people over at sony understand exactly what made his peter parker work and what they can do to amplify it like right. you know just him trading jabs back and forth um with zendaya especially like when she throws the bread at him <laughs> like moments like that to where he's just you know, he's a bro. He's hanging out. He's like, why'd you call me back here? 
they feel more genuine. And especially when he and Toby and the whole gang go to find Tom Holland's Peter Parker mm. on top of his like spot to escape. Mm-hmm. Even more than Toby Maguire, I think that's Andrew Garfield basically yelling at people saying, guys, I did what I could with those two movies. I didn't have the control I wanted. This is what I've been wanting to do from the get go. Please like me. There's a fun meta aspect to his performance that I've seen people like poke at online that even goes as far as like him, like him and Emma Stone were dating when they were made those Mm -hmm. movies. And so there is, it is like not too far of a stretch to think of when he's sort of like teary eyed work, still processing the end of his relationship with Gwen Stacy in the movie that it kind of feels like Andrew Garfield may be working through some things about his previous relationship with Emma Stone. Um, I mean, yeah, I'll leave it there. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, and you know, to to give Tobey Maguire some credit too. Both of these Spider Men are essentially meant to fill in different spaces for Tom Holland's Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. I think Andrew Garfield is there to be more of a reality check in mm-hmm. terms of what being a Spider Man is actually like. Mm-hmm. And Toby Maguire is essentially his his ethics check. Mm-hmm. And the two of those things together worked so seamlessly. And again, this might be a hats off to the script or maybe just John Watts's direction. Both of these guys are given their moment and they don't feel like they were just thrown in. Mm-hmm. There is nothing in either of these performances that feel like unrequited fan service. Like, it just feels like a very personal kind of hangout with old friends. That's why I would watch a two-hour movie of them just sitting on, you know, the new Statue of Liberty Mm -hmm. talking about villains they fought. Because they've all made distinct enough personalities over the years to where they don't feel like they're playing characters. They feel like they're playing real people. Mm -hmm. So, Um, oh, go ahead. No, by all means. Oh, no, I was just going to transition us to the villains and yes. Defoe, who, you know, I liked Alfred Molina in in this movie. Um, his, his Doc Ock is maybe like my favorite villain that's been in any Spider-Man movie. Um, and like Mysterio was one of my favorite villains, just like reading Spider-Man comics as a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he he's he's good coming back, I think. Jamie Foxx and Thomas Hayden Church feel feel a little bit like if I have to, or or a little bit like I'll give you two hours. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And <laughs> you I don't get know two hours you... with me, guys. <laughs> well, and think Reese Ifans. I mean, he's like, listen, you got about you've got five lines. You can use the five lines in whatever order and whatever place in the movie. But uh, I need. To I go forgot do that Man. was the character in that first. Like, I forgot that Lizard was the first, the villain in the first Andrew Garfield movie. I, I was like struggling going into this. I was like, who? I remember Jamie Foxx's Electro, but then like, who was it in the first? And then I was like, was maybe Dane DeHaan, Green Goblin a little bit in that? And then like, uh, Lizard shows up in this. I was like, oh right, that oh. was like what a nothing burger like whiff of a super villain <laughs> where it's like oh yeah you're back yes oh hey well and 
even to to show how little some of these guys probably were involved, mm-hmm. you know, the footage that we see of them is just archival footage from those previous movies. Right. <laughs> and it's it goes to show that I'm I'm sure for those guys in a lot of ways probably like how Andrew Garfield was. Mm-hmm. They're done. Yeah. This this chapter of their lives is closed. Um they, no one is particularly bad in the bunch, but they're not given anything to really do. No, which is why I think Defoe shines because Defoe I think is given the most to do out of any of them and Defoe fully rolls up his sleeves and is is like no this will be fun I'm I'm glad to do this again and he's evil in this like I don't yes. I, like he's a like murderous like I had forgotten kind of how and went back and watched some clips like Green Goblin in the first Sam Raimi movie is like a nasty, scary, like murderous character. Yeah, that he could and, fit in a David Fincher movie, right? And it's interesting. It, that felt like another sort of refreshing wave of, you know, I think because of how sort of uh, wide the the sort of range of audiences for most of these Marvel Disney movies. It's it felt like kind of a refreshing change of pace to have like no this is like a purely evil psychopath person that is doing like it it is not kind of like a maniacal space alien that's like some Oscar winning actor behind like six inches of makeup or something like that who's right like or quip- just a voice right who's quipping with like Robert Downey Jr. or something like that it's right. like no this is someone who's like I'm going to murder your family and then laugh about it and then fly off into the distance and like good like that's you know i remember seeing kind of like the the first batman movie the tim burton one as a kid and like there's something scary about jack nicholson as the joker or danny devito as the penguin and so (laughs) it it was refreshing for defoe to i think bring a bit of menace and danger and and kind of like true darkness and evil maniacal energy into one of these comic book movies to like make the stakes really, really personal. And it not just feeling like, Oh, here's the, the fun bad guy or the big CGI monster they have to fight. And it's like, no, this isn't like an actual evil person that wants to inflict harm upon the people that you care about. And is like an actual threat and is actually terrifying. Well, and it's, it's that arc that they give him Mm -hmm. because for at least, and I mean, let's face it, everyone knew okay, at some point, you know, Norman Osborn's going to snap and he's going to be the goblin we know. Right. But for a while, you feel kind of sorry for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think placing him in his first initial scene with Marissa Tomei and Tom Holland at the Feast facility is really smart because even for the people who may not be as familiar, who may not have seen his first movie, you know, way back when, you kind of look at it and you watch that scene play out and you go, okay, was this guy as really as evil and as broken as I thought he was? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we get the little snippet beforehand where he breaks the helmet, all that. That's fine. But there's a vulnerability there that we know is going to be harder after he breaks from the wickedness, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. particularly, I want to give a little bit of a notice. There's a scene in that building as the fight's breaking out where Tom Holland is just going to town, Mm -hmm. hitting it. 
And Willem Dafoe doesn't break that smile <laughs> with every hit. And as I was sitting there and having, again, having seen it three times, that is the true menace of what a supervillain should be. Yeah. Is somebody who is just, he's screwing with the hero. He doesn't want domination. He doesn't want, you know, a device that can destroy the world. No, he just wants to mess with you. Yeah. And seeing that, especially with where he goes later, I thought was fascinating. And kudos to Defoe for, you know, doing something like this and then going into a Robert Eggers movie in two months. Like, that's a big leap. Good yeah. for him. God just seems like he wants to have fun. All all power to him. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, if you can do these big superhero movies and then jump over to Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's world for a scene or two, right. why not? So I maybe want to float by before we kind of like wrap things up. Maybe some of my quibbles with the movie, some of the stuff that yes. kind of keeps it from being like, kind of makes it like, I think a solidly fun night out at the movies, but kept it from being, I think a, a great movie in my eyes. I think the first thing is kind of a complaint I have about a lot of the Marvel movies, which is there, there is a, and I don't know whether it's the the best defense I've heard of it is it is to keep a certain visual continuity between these movies. But I think kind of harkening back to what I said earlier about constantly thinking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 and about Spider-Verse, I think specifically with Spider-Verse, because it's an animated movie, it is able to find more imaginative and kind of creative ways to sort of explore the idea of like a multiverse and different versions of spider-man both visually and in its storytelling than this movie is necessarily able to um i just kind of found this movie kind of visually flat and and it it there's a certain kind of like you know, I, I always point people to there's a great video essay, actually several at this point by this guy, Patrick H. Willems, kind of like mm -hmm. explaining sort of some of the flaws and kind of the the visuals that Marvel constructs and how, you know, these are comic book adaptations. They're supposed to be big and colorful and have all these exciting visuals, but there always seems to be something so workmanlike about the way that they're sort of constructed and something like this kind of like almost concrete, like, sh you know, Instagram yeah. filter put over everything in which the colors are just a little bit muted. And especially when the scenes are out in the daylight, you know, to kind of bring in the Sam Raimi movie, like when you think about how Doc Ock is introduced in that movie and Raimi is doing all these like crazy camera movements and like insert shots of like tentacles going and grabbing people's faces and like flinging them across rooms. And you really feel like you're in the hands of like a genuine filmmaker who understands like the language of horror movies and is, is able to sort of make this, the action scenes and that visually dynamic and exciting. And here, you know, Doc Ock gets introduced to like the ground shakes a little bit, like it's Jurassic right. park. And then here just comes like Alfred Molina with like CGI arms kind of right. like coming through the cars and it's just like hey peter um <laughs> <laughs> and that's just sort of like it's less visually exciting to me and and i kind of i'm able to sort of overlook that a little bit with the other tom holland movies because they aren't so directly referencing kind of other iterations of this character that i just find more 
stylish and kind of visually exciting to look at as comic book adaptations. And so I kind of just had this weird feeling watching the movie of like, yes, I, I am not impervious to the sort of like nostalgia kind of tip of the hat um, that you get with this movie. Or like I've described it to people as feeling like, do you remember a few years ago when SNL did that like reunion special? Yes. And they like brought back all the big cast members that had been on. And so it's like, oh, um, I don't think he actually did Gumby. I think that was a later episode. But like, you know, when it's like Eddie Murphy's going to come back and do Gumby or like here's um, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. They're going to do uh, Wayne's World and stuff. And right. the excitement was sort of like there was all this anticipation because it was like, oh, you get to see these sort of hall of fame cast members come back and do their iconic sketches but whenever that happens at least i personally never feel like it's those are never like the most exciting sketches when those people come back but they get a lot of traction online because people are like they did wayne's world again or something like that (laughs) and that and that kind of like made me that's kind of how i felt about this movie and just sort of like yes i i'm having a pleasant enough time kind of having this sort of big reunion uh, of everyone who's sort of been in a in a Spider-Man movie at this point, but of also, it it just sort of feels like it kind of just felt like a reunion special to me, and and yeah. it didn't. I thought no favors to this movie and kind of the the Marvel aesthetic to sort of be bringing in people and sort of in the case of Spider Verse, sort of tipping the hat towards other iterations of this character that are able to be way more exciting, I think, with their aesthetics. Oh, definitely. And, you know, especially with something like Spider-Verse or even something like, let's say, Avengers Endgame, Mm -hmm. you're juggling a lot of characters. And you have, yes, you know, the the expectation is fans have followed along. They know what's up with these people. Um, And especially with Endgame, the Russo brothers, you know, gave James Gunn a call with guardians of the galaxy Mm -hmm. um they gave peyton reed a call with ant-man it doesn't feel in this film like any of the distinctiveness Mm -hmm. of those other movies is really there right everything like you kind of said has this this marvel gloss right painted over it and another big thing i would say with that is we're never really given the rules right as to how all this time stuff works And one of the things that really bothered me early on that worried me is in that first 30 minutes before Strange or Peter goes to Doctor Strange fully, you know, to cast Mm. the spell and stuff. They tell us about five, maybe five times how dangerous the multiverse is Uh (laughs) and how that is expected to be our thing to realize why, oh, he shouldn't do this. Like, you know, this isn't going to go good. I, I never really worried mm-hmm. for Peter Parker. And there's this, you know, jaded, cynical old man part of me that as things went bad, it's like, well, kid, they warned you five times. That's, it's not I, subtle. I had that feeling, too, of more. And it was more just sort of like, you know, I will buy into like because he's a kid. He's a teenager. Like yeah. P- Peter making the mistake of no, we should help the villains and stuff. And I understand the the arc that is supposed to have. But then when it gets into the back half of the movie and everyone yep. around him but Doctor Strange is like, 
great idea, Peter. Even after all the villains have escaped and Aunt May has been killed, everyone's still like, terrific plan. We sh- we should try that again. And they have the box that they could just send them all back at any moment. And I kept being just, I, I was like, was just like pulling my hair out. I was like, why? Just send them back. <laughs> you could just like snap your, it's, it's like there's an easy like snap. It's not even a like, it doesn't even it's feel like MacGuffin. a plot. Yeah, it's not a plot hole in the sense of like, well, this character should be making this decision than that. It's just sort of like you you have the like snap your fingers solution to yeah. the, the Thanos solution to everything. Like you're in possession. We know it's the movie has established there is like an object that you have right now that all you gotta do is like, I don't know, shake it like a magic eight ball or however it works, and you send them all back. Like, how is that not your just like next option or something like that? Exactly. <laughs> but I will give them this. Uh-huh. If we didn't have this road, we wouldn't get the really, really cool mirrorverse sequence. That 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 great great bit. Doesn't, you know, doesn't help just the logic of why he didn't just hit the button and not try to run away from Doctor Strange. Uh-huh. But I, you know, I, I can be forgiving if you are giving me enough other visual treats and trinkets to things mm-hmm. that i'm entertained by but yes it's that rare it's that typical movie thing to where everything could be solved with a literal one conversation right and a hit of the button yes that's it in this that's case it. the movie making it very apparent at every moment that like oh by the way we have the button that can solve all of this, but we're going to, we're going to work harder, not smarter or something like that. Yeah. We're going to work harder to help everybody and, you know, try to fix everything. Um, but don't worry about this thing. It could fix our problems, but we're the good guys. We right. can't, we can't do that, you know? And yeah, we're never going to get that movie, but I think there's a way to kind of clarify why that is would not have been the smartest option that the movie is a little skittish mm-hmm. to ever approach. And the other quick thing I, I want to bring up in terms of kind of a negative, you know, we're, we're given a Peter Parker who wants to see the good in everybody. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Deep down, do these guys really have a lot of good? I think so. The weird thing is like, the Doc Ock thing, and this is maybe more me like really loving Spider-Man too, but Doc Ock kind of comes around at the end of that movie. It like more yeah. sort of like sacrifices himself. And so like, I guess I was more willing to buy into the like, yeah, we can probably fix him. But then I honestly like just totally forgot about Electro or Sandman. But I was, you know, for Green Goblin was just like, that's that's not gonna work. We had, yeah, this we guy's had to kill Defoe cause. in the other movie. Yeah, and and that sort of logic really bothered me mm-hmm. because it's like, okay, well, yeah, Doc Ock is good, but he's got these things controlling him, and you know they're still connected to his body. Is is he at the point that he can live a normal life with these giant tentacles protruding from his back? Mm-hmm. I don't know if the movie ever clearly defines if any of them are or not. I mean, what you know, yes, the lizard turns back to normal, but could he still go back to being a lizard? Who knows? What if he it seems like he wants to be a lizard? That that seems well, like a thing. <laughs> he makes enough references to it. 
you know, the, the movie is very quick to acknowledge that he wants still wants to turn everyone else into a lizard. What's to say, you know, he doesn't leave after this giant battle and try it all again. Right. Andrew Garfield has his hands full. Uh, well, I, I enjoyed having you on this, yes. this week. Um, you know, Thank the you. movie has made a bunch of money. We'll, it'll probably continue making more money. Um, you know, we're going to get it. My, my maybe disappointment of not getting a sort of visually dynamic Spider-Man movie. There's a Spider-Verse sequel next year. So I'll, I was going to say, you know, at least I'll, we I'll have get that. brought around eventually and <laughs> all will be well. So <laughs> there you go. All the good in the world will be back and everything will be balanced. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we Gabe, can have our glorious IMAX. Yes. Gabe, thanks again for, for hopping on this week. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Jesse.